Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. He called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Father, as we contemplate the authority that you gave to these apostles and the message that you entrusted to them, we pray, Lord, that the truth of that message would strike us anew. The truth that that power testified to would be kindled in our hearts. We ask that as we hear your word proclaimed, that we would answer it and say amen to it and embrace it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here in Matthew 10, it's finally time for some introductions. It's possible for someone to show up at church to attend for week after week, and yet you somehow haven't met them yet. You don't even know their name. They're familiar to you, but you're not quite sure who that is. It's always embarrassing when you go up to someone and say, hey, welcome to church. Um, Great to have you here. Is this your first time? And they're like, no, I've been attending here for months. Well, here, the apostles are introduced to us. We've gotten glimpses of them before, but now Matthew gives us a list. He explains to us who are these 12 apostles, who are these 12 harvesters now being sent out by Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. He gives us their names. Don't get too attached because some of them you won't be hearing about after this. If you're waiting for the part in the Bible where we get to the adventures of Simon the Zealot, for example, That never happens. Some of these guys, we only really know their names and aren't really sure anything more about them. The importance here is not any one individual, but all of them together, the 12 who are being sent out. We just finished a long sermon series on the first of Matthew's five discourses of Jesus. Now we begin the second in Matthew 10. The nice thing is this one is contained within Matthew 10. It's just this one chapter of Matthew's gospel. It's often called the missionary discourse because this, uh, it consists of, of like Jesus's instructions as he sends out his apostles as missionaries into the world. So it's basically Jesus giving Marching orders, Jesus telling them how to do the work of a missionary. For our purposes, what's significant here is that it is at this moment that the apostolic foundation of the church is being laid. The apostles are introduced to us as 12, and then they are sent out to begin their work. Jesus gives them authority 
to do that work, power from him in order to do that work. So throughout the course of chapter 10, we're going to be looking at the apostolic foundation of the church. This sermon, the introduction, you might think of as the foundation of the foundation. What we're going to do here is make some foundational observations that will help us understand the work of the apostles and their significance to us as believers. What does their authority mean to us? What is apostolic authority? When we say that we believe in one holy, Catholic, apostolic church, what does that mean? What makes a church apostolic? How can I tell if a church is apostolic or not? These are all questions that we'll be looking at. Jesus gives authority in the first verse of chapter 10 to his apostles to do the kinds of things he's already been doing, the kind of healing, the making whole, the signs that he has performed, testifying to the truth of the arrival of his kingdom. Now he gives the power to do these signs to these 12 men as well. And the language that Matthew uses echoes a much more famous passage that says more or less the same thing. If you turn all the way to the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, and then you go to the end of that chapter, you find what we call the Great Commission. But the Great Commission begins with Jesus saying, all authority is given to me. And now I send you out with authority to fulfill this mission. If that's the Great Commission, you might think of this at the beginning of Matthew 10 as the First Commission. Kind of the beginning of that sending out and that transfer, that delegation of authority. So right now, as we contemplate the chapter ahead, there are three things I want us to consider. Three things I'm going to say are foundational truths. If we want to understand the apostles, if we want to understand their role back then and also now for us, these are the things that we need to come to terms with first. By granting his authority to the twelve, Jesus establishes spiritual Israel, the church. There's a significance to this grant of authority. Jesus is starting something. He's establishing a work, and I'm going to call that work spiritual Israel. I'll explain in a moment why that is. But secondly, that authority that he gives to the apostles, there's something about that authority that we need to realize, that Apostolic authority, it depends not on physical succession, but on spiritual succession. It's an authority that you don't inherit the way you inherit a fortune from your ancestors. It's passed down differently than that, as we will see. Finally, the mission of the apostles, the mission of the apostolic church, is a mission that depends for success from the beginning, on Christ's power, on his gift of authority, not on our own, not on our own ability. It is only by relying on his authority and passing down his message that the mission of the church is fulfilled. Let's start with what's probably the hardest part of what I've just said, which is the idea that Christ here is establishing something that I'm calling spiritual Israel. So I want you to observe some things. So the difference between spiritual and physical. We talk about this a lot when it comes to the kingdom. 
right? We say that the people of Israel expected a physical kingdom, but what Jesus came to establish was a spiritual kingdom. So far, so good. If we need a name for that kingdom, though, if we need to call it something, I'm going to suggest a name for it would be Israel. That was the name of the kingdom that people were anticipating. That was the name of the people that had been set apart by God. That was the name of the nation that he had established. And while what he had come to do was spiritual and not physical, it still applied to Israel. It still applied to Israel. Now, the old Israel, physical Israel, Israel as we think of it in the Old Testament, that was a covenant community which had been established in a certain way. It had a certain foundation, if you will. That foundation consisted of 12 patriarchs, right? There were 12 tribes of Israel. Each of those tribes had a sort of symbolic head in one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Spiritual Israel is established by Christ similarly on a foundation consisting of 12. 12 apostles who very self-consciously mirror the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament. Interestingly, like the sons of Jacob, not all of the apostles are very distinguished. If you go back to the Old Testament and you look for the adventures of Naphtali and books like that, you will quickly discover, like Simon the Zealot, he has fallen into obscurity. Not much is recorded because what's important isn't the individuals. It is the group. It is the twelve, because together what God did in and through them was a work that was foundational. They weren't necessarily men of merit, in other words. They hadn't been chosen for their special abilities. They weren't particularly distinguished. They were just the men that God chose to build upon. And what he built upon them was Israel. That's the idea. So, now what you have to understand is this. Jesus didn't come to create a new, parallel, alternate covenant community to the one that had already been established. He didn't come to create a sort of plan B. He didn't say, look, we have physical Israel, and that's cool, but wouldn't it be cool if we also had this separate thing called spiritual Israel, and the two just kind of ran on parallel tracks, If we had the old, and we kept working with the old, but then we also introduced the new as well. That's not what Jesus does. Instead, the new erupts within the old. The new comes and fulfills the old. The new continues the old. The spiritual is the fulfillment of the physical, which is why when we talk about the physical kingdom, we say that it points forward to the spiritual kingdom. It has sign value in that way. Okay, so far so good, but let me give you some touchstone passages so that you can see this connection very clearly in the New Testament. So we're going to look at two passages that are key here, um, familiar passages, but there's a reason why they are so familiar. The first is, of course, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is a wonderful chapter for understanding the church, what the church is, how Christ has built up the church. But listen to the way that Paul describes the church. We'll start in verse 19 of Ephesians 2. 
He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, He's describing the church as a kind of building, right? A kind of temple, a place where God will dwell with his people and in his people. That's the metaphor that Paul is using. When you build a structure, you lay a foundation first. The foundation is what it will sit on. The foundation will hold up the weight of what you build on top of it. The foundation, according to Paul, consists of two groups, the apostles and the prophets. The prophets is often a shorthand term in the New Testament to refer to the Old Testament. We say that Jesus preached from the prophets or the law and the prophets. We're talking about the Old Testament. The prophets here is a general reference to the Old Testament, although, of course, specifically has in mind the actual prophets as well. We might think especially of the prophets whose prophecies are fulfilled with the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. So again, one structure, and in its foundation, we have Old Testament and New Testament together. He doesn't say two structures. He doesn't say there are two buildings. One of them has a foundation of prophets, the other has a foundation of apostles. It's one. And Christ is the cornerstone of that one structure that is being built. Now go to Revelation 21. You go all the way towards the the end of the book of Revelation, we have another image that makes a similar point in far greater detail. This is John's vision of the heavenly city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. If you read in Revelation 21, starting in verse 10, John says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve sons of Jacob. Oh, actually, no, that's not what it says. It says, on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Jerusalem, this heavenly city, whose gates bear the inscription of the names of the twelve tribes and the foundations of its walls, it bears the names of the twelve apostles. When John looks up into the sky, he sees this vision. He doesn't see two cities coming down. He doesn't see a sort of double vision, two structures, the old and the new, side by side, parallel, separate but equal. He sees one city, 
And in its structure, in its DNA, it is bound together, it is glued together, both old and new, as one. One dwelling place for the one God. The new Jerusalem is the church. If you have doubts about that, go back and read the chapter. Because the way it's introduced is someone says to John, Hey, come and see the bride of Christ. And then what he sees is the city. The bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb, God's people, the church. The same dwelling place that Paul writes about in Ephesians 2. Its gates inscribed with the names of the twelve tribes. Its foundations inscribed with the names of the twelve apostles. One city, not two. Now, these apostles laying this foundation, receiving this authority, what was the purpose of this authority? Why were they given this? And to whom exactly was it given? Was this authority given to all of the twelve? Or was it Simon Peter in particular who received this grant of apostolic authority? Certainly, Peter is referred to here as the protos, the first. And in every list of apostles, Peter comes first. There can be no doubt that among the apostles, Peter was preeminent, that he was the one who took the lead, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worst. But he was definitely the guy who was in the lead, the one that they looked to, their spokesman. Was that authority mainly his authority? Was he mainly the one who had the power to pass it down? That's the question. Now, this authority is a unique authority. When Jesus grants this authority to the apostles, they're given it for a reason, right? Through the apostles, the church will be established. And their ministry will be one of proclaiming the kingdom just like his, and it will be verified by signs just like his. That's why they're given this authority. And then having been given the authority to proclaim the message, they will also preserve it. Through the power of the Spirit, they will commit the message to Scripture. It will be inscripturated by them and then passed down to future generations of, of Christians. It's the Bible. This is their special work, to lay the foundation by proclaiming the kingdom and by committing those words to Scripture and passing them down. When the last of the apostles was gone, all of the work of the foundation had been done. It had been laid. The canon was closed. The message had been delivered. There was no more foundation to be done. Now it was time to build on it. We have a tendency always to want to start at the beginning, to lay a new foundation. That is the tendency that Scripture pushes against. We're specifically told this is the foundation of the church. If it's not built on this foundation, it is not Christ's church. That's the significance of the work of the apostles. And after they were gone, the task of believers, every generation afterwards, was to keep on proclaiming the message that they had proclaimed. Do what Jude calls proclaiming the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith that was once for all delivered, not is continuously being delivered, but was given to us once for all in that apostolic generation. There will be no new apostles. There will be no new books of Scripture 
Because the foundation is laid. The work is complete. So let's talk about how that authority is passed down. How apostolic authority works. Here, we're emphasizing the importance of spiritual, not physical succession. Right? What is it that makes the church apostolic? In the Nicene Creed, when we say one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, oftentimes the, the word we qualify there is Catholic. So that you understand, we don't mean capital C, like Roman Catholic. We mean something older, a more ancient use of the word to mean universal or more accurately according to the whole to be catholic in the early church was to believe what all the christians believe to sort of have in common all of the the basic understanding of what the apostles had taught but apostolic is a word that needs some clarification for us as well there's one argument about apostolic authority that argues that that authority is passed down through physical succession. In other words, what makes a church apostolic is that the present-day leader of the church can trace his lineage back to the apostles. When people say this, the apostle they mean is Peter. So the idea is quite literal. When I was ordained, a group of pastors came forward and prayed and laid hands on me. Now, if we went to God's version of Ancestry.com and we traced the lineage of those men who laid their hands on me and found out who laid hands on them and worked our way back to who laid hands on those guys and then back another generation, who exactly laid hands on those guys and started tracing it all back, what we want to discover is that if we go back far enough, that the first guy to lay hands on a guy was Peter because who laid hands on him was Jesus. And if that's not the case, if we can't demonstrate that, then no authority, no apostolic authority, because that line was broken. Now, I'm personally skeptical of this sort of genealogical research. I'm not positive that anyone could actually trace a line like that back. Uh, I have good reason to be skeptical. My grandmother got really interested in genealogy. She got online and did all these genealogical results. She gave me binders full of her results telling me about my wonderful ancestry, all of the people I was related to, including Charlemagne, uh, Elizabeth I, which was great because I had been under the impression that the Tudor line had literally died out and that they'd had to replace it, but apparently no. I am a living heir of the kings of England and, and should rule and reign there. But even better, she discovered that I was descended from the Egyptian sun god Ra. And I was like, you know, I'm not sure it's possible to be descended from a mythological character. And she's like, it is. I've printed it out from the internet. Here's, here's the proof. So again, I tend to treat claims like this skeptically, like going all the way back to the ancient world. Yeah, I don't know. But, but... You can't dismiss this stuff out of hand, because if it's the way Jesus intended things to work, then that's the way that it works, right? So we want to go back and see, is this what they thought in the early church? Like, if I go back and I start reading early Christian documents, and they all start saying stuff that sounds like this thing I'm laughing at, then maybe I need to reevaluate my perspective. And sure enough, if you go back to A.D. 180 and you start reading one of the early books of apologetics, Irenaeus's book Against Heresies, Irenaeus says that you should believe what the apostles teach. 
that you cannot be a Christian unless you believe in the apostolic message. And in order to believe in the apostolic message, you have to believe what the bishops believe. That's how you know what the apostles taught. You just believe what they believe, and then you'll be right. And that sounds a lot like physical succession. If you want to know what the Bible teaches, you need to go to Rome, and whoever is the bishop of Rome right now, whatever he says goes. And you start reading that, and you think, that's way early. I mean, that is super early in the church. If they were already thinking that way in 180, what if they were thinking that way from the beginning? And then you keep reading. And you realize Irenaeus does something else. He doesn't just tell you whose beliefs you need to model yourself on. He then tells you what those beliefs are. He says, you need to believe what the Bishop of Rome believes. Here's what the Bishop of Rome believes. And he gives you basically a primitive version of what we would recognize as the Apostles' Creed. He actually gives it to you. He says, this is what you must cling to. And there's something interesting going on here. It makes sense. In a world of rampant illiteracy, where it can be difficult to know, like, and you certainly can't just slap some scrolls in, in front of some Germanic tribe and say, hey, read this, and you'll know what Christians believe. They need some sort of summary statement, some sort of creedal statement to work with that summarizes the apostolic faith. Here's what the apostles proclaimed. And so that's how these early creeds develop. The reason why Irenaeus can point to the bishops, i.e. the pastors of these churches, and say, believe what they believe, is that they believe what they were taught. Because they have faithfully passed down what they themselves were given, so that there's no daylight between what the apostles taught and what their successors taught. And that's the key. That's the key. He's not saying, believe what they believe because they happen to hold the office that has the power. He's saying, believe what they believe because they believe what they were given, and they cling to it tenaciously. Paradoxically, if you've ever wondered why the church in Rome was so preeminent in the ancient church, it was not because of its theological innovations. It was because of its conservatism. Because whatever crazy stuff people in the Greek-speaking world were coming up with, whatever new ideas and doctrines in Rome, that stuff just didn't catch on. People were a little more hard-headed. They were just like, eh, I just like what we got when I was a kid. I'll just believe in that thing that it was once delivered to the saints. I'll cling to that. And that served them well when it came to handing down the faith that had been delivered to them. But you get the idea, like you understand, there is a logic to this idea of physical succession. Pharisees certainly understood it. They claimed in Jesus' presence to be sons of Abraham. They had standing before God. They were the sons of Abraham. They knew they were the sons of Abraham because they were the physical descendants of Abraham. Jesus called that claim into question. He did not think linear descent, physical succession, is what made you a son of Abraham. Neither did the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul says it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, those who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had. It's not who you descend from. It is what you believe that makes you apostolic. 
In the days of Irenaeus, the leaders of the church walked in the footsteps of the faith that the apostles had. No one could point to them and say, these guys have changed it up. They've innovated. They've done just the opposite. And so you could just believe what they believed. But apostolic authority was never meant by Christ to be the authority to change or alter the faith, to uh, provide new revelation, to add the scripture, or to add or subtract from the gospel itself. Jesus gives this authority to do his mission, his way, to preserve the message that he has given, not to innovate. Simon Peter certainly did not consider himself to be in authority over the ancient church. He referred to the other bishops, pastors, elders, as his fellow elders, not his subordinates, his fellow elders. There was a hierarchy in the early church, but it was pretty flat. It was almost, you might say, Presbyterian in its outlook, but that's a different sermon. Peter did not have the authority to change the gospel that he had been given. When Peter did deviate from what he had been taught, the way people responded was not the way that you would respond to someone who had the authority to do what he wanted to do and say what he wanted to say. When Peter pulled back from Gentile inclusion, when he became uh, reluctant to eat with Gentiles, Paul, who was new to this whole apostle thing, didn't see Peter doing that and say, well, I, I guess things have changed. I guess it used to be okay to eat with Gentiles, and now it's not because the protest has spoken. Peter has shown us no. Instead, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly wrong. Wow. That gives us an insight into what apostolic authority actually was. It was important to be right. It didn't matter who'd laid hands on you. It mattered what you believed. You see this in the New Testament. And in case you're wondering, when Paul talks about this in Galatians, he's not explaining how the Reformation began. He's not saying, and that's when Peter excommunicated me, and I had to leave and start my new church. No. Peter didn't excommunicate him. He didn't shun the one who had opposed his authority. Peter repented of his error. This all shows us how they understood the authority that had been given to them. What makes us apostolic isn't physical descent. It's doing what Paul told Timothy to do. He said, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The faith, once for all delivered to the saints, follow the pattern of sound doctrine, and then you are walking in the footsteps of the apostles because they walked in the footsteps of Christ. Which brings us to our last point, our reliance on the master to fulfill the mission. And this really is the most important thing. Something easily missed, I think, just reading these verses. Jesus gives authority to his apostles. I hope it's clear by now that he didn't give them authority to just do whatever they wanted. He gave them authority to continue his mission of proclaiming the kingdom. To do what he was doing, but on a larger scale. The most important thing about that grant of authority is not the limit of that authority. 
although that's mainly what we've been talking about. The most important thing about Jesus granting authority to the apostles isn't making sure that we put guardrails up and don't, like, take it too far. But the most important thing is the actual gift of authority, that he gave them authority, like his authority he gave to these unworthy people in order to continue the mission that he had begun. The apostles themselves had no power to do this. They had no ability to proclaim the kingdom in their own strength. And so Jesus gave them that power. And the success of their mission depended from the beginning and always has depended and always will depend on that power. The success of the mission of Christ depends on the power of Christ, nothing else. Nothing else. Our proclamation of the kingdom doesn't become powerful because we can trace our lineage back to the right people. Our proclamation of the kingdom doesn't become powerful when we hold tenaciously to the pattern of doctrine that has been delivered to us. Our proclamation doesn't become powerful because we are living our faith with excellence or at least talking about it eloquently. None of those things are what gives power to this message. The only thing that gives it power is Christ, his authority, his power granted to us. It is only as he works in and through us that there is any success to this mission. That's why I say this is the most important thing. To see that here, as the foundation is laid, Jesus grants authority. He gives a gift of spiritual power. The power of our proclamation comes from the authority of the king who we proclaim, and nowhere else. I've always had a problem with the Great Commission. I don't know about you, but when people quote the Great Commission to me, I experience that as a burden or a weight. It's such a downer for Matthew's gospel to end the way that it does. Like you have this glorious story of Jesus' work, and then at the end it's like Jesus is leaving, and instead of saying, and it's all done, it's like he says, now I'm leaving, and I have some stuff I want you to do while I'm gone. My mother used to do that to us when we were kids when she was leaving us unaccompanied in the house, and we would immediately start planning all sorts of feral adventures we were going to have in her absence. She never just left. She gave a commission. Like, while I'm gone, in my absence, here are the tasks that I expect to be performed before I return. And we never knew exactly when she was going to come back. She might come back and surprise you. So you kind of had to at least try to do some of that stuff. But But thinking of all the fun that we had planned, it was always a downer to get those instructions. And you can experience the Great Commission in much the same way, because the Great Commission sounds like a great responsibility. Like Jesus is giving us a big responsibility. We all want status and recognition. We don't want responsibility. Responsibility means having to get things done. Nobody likes to have that weight on their shoulders. The reason why vacation is so nice is because the weight of responsibility temporarily is removed from your shoulders. And now here's Jesus 
taking that weight and saying, here, I'm giving you some authority. Don't buckle. Don't collapse under the weight. Do. Do. And that can feel really, really tough. And some people, in response to that toughness, let's say if you had a a, a more moralistic pastor who was going to make you confront this head-on, might see in your reluctance to take on responsibility a, a, a weakness, a flaw that needs to be overcome. And the best way to overcome flaws like that is to confront them head-on and just say, look, I know you don't like responsibility. It's because you're a sinner. You don't want to be entrusted with doing things for the kingdom because you don't want to do good things because you're sinful. But... This is a good thing, and it's good for you, even though you don't like it, so you need to embrace the responsibility. That heavy burden, that weight that's been placed upon your shoulders, learn to love it, or at least to do it. That's what Christ has called you. Do that hard thing. It is good for you, so take it. That's not what Christ says to us. Christ doesn't say, I'm giving you this big responsibility, it's going to be tough, you're probably going to fail, and it's going to dog you for all the days of this mortal life, but it'll be good for you, so take it. Jesus doesn't say, here's some responsibility. He says, the responsibility is all mine. I've taken it. The weight, I've carried it. I've done it all. What I'm giving to you is not a weight, it's a gift. I'm giving you power. I'm giving you ability that you did not have to live as you have been called to live. I'm giving you the ability to do what without this gift you could never dream of doing. Not to take on horrible responsibility, but to take on authority and be the one that Christ works in and through. This gift is what we should celebrate Because this gift of power, of authority, is one that has been granted to the apostles and all those who follow after them. The commission that he gave to them and that he gives to us is not a heavy responsibility certain to be met with failure. Instead, it is a glorious gift that he allows us to participate in this proclamation of his kingdom. So receive it as a gift and rejoice in it. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.